0: hey heads up in case you're listening with kids one of the guests in this episode curses like a sailor fun fact he's an actual sailor so he's earned it okay here's the show debbie had just gotten off her shift she was a police officer in louisville kentucky and she was finally driving home it was a little after midnight super foggy
1: And I look up and I see something going on in the median, in the intersection, and I thought it was a wreck. And I pulled up to it, and it turned out that one of our local sheriffs had actually been attempting to make an arrest, and they were fighting in the median. Um, And I noticed that the prisoner, or the going to be a prisoner, actually had one handcuff on. And that's a very dangerous situation for officers if they're slinging that handcuff around. It's um, It can be pretty deadly if it hits you. So I jumped out of the car real quick and, and helped him you know, finish handcuffing the guy.
0: There was another problem, though. The sheriff's car didn't have a barrier between the front and back seats. Patrolling wasn't part of the sheriff's normal duties. He just happened to catch this guy drinking and driving. But Debbie did have a patrol car, so even though she was off duty, she said she'd drive the prisoner to the police station. She put him in her car, then went back to check on the sheriff.
1: And all of a sudden, just the weirdest sound, out of the darkness, out of this fog, you hear
0: this baby crying. Wait, on top of everything, did Debbie need to rescue a baby? Nope, it was Debbie's baby, crying in the front passenger seat of her car. This was 1984, and back then, it was legal, even common, to put your car seat up front. So I
1: started towards the car, and when I got to the car, this guy who had been fighting and spitting and yelling and just, you know, been crazy, was leaned up, he had his forehead against the shield, and he was crying, and he was saying, it's okay, baby, stop (laughs) crying. It was so comical. (laughs) So she just reduced him to mush.
0: This is The Longest, Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and that baby, she's all grown up now.
1: My name is Whitney Fontaine, and I am a food scientist and a chef.
0: Whitney wrote to us because she wanted to tell the story of what it was like to spend a lot of her childhood in a police car. Her mom and dad were both cops. Whitney went through one of her most memorable rites of passage in Debbie's police car, and today they're going to share that story with us. And then we'll hear two other stories with adult children talking about their own pivotal moments with their parents, small anecdotes that mean something bigger in the context of their relationships. And there is nothing else really that ties these stories together. We just thought you'd like them. Dear listener, think of this show as a mixtape that our little show made just for your little ears. Before I tell you Whitney's big rite-of-passage police car story, you've got to understand what a badass her mom Debbie is. A real trailblazer. Back in the mid-70s, there weren't many women in the Louisville police force.
1: I was the first female cadet, so that got to be a little comical. They didn't really—we kind of made it up as we went along with my uniform. They started me in a school guard uniform. I had to wear, like, black high heels and black pants and a white shirt and a cross tie. It was—you it was, know, I kind of looked like a— I, don't, I forget what they call the women in the Navy that kind of look like that.
0: <laughs> and it wasn't just her uniform the department had to improvise. They had to figure out tricky things like how do you even train a female officer? For
1: example, being a cadet, I was supposed to occasionally go on a ride along with officers because I was there to learn. And my commanding officer just made a rule that I could only ride with police officers who were either
0: female or single. Um, So I wasn't allowed to ride with a married man. Debbie did eventually date one of the single men in the force. They got married. About five years later, Debbie was driving around in her police car and had to pull over to throw up. Around the same time, she was having these strange cravings for nachos. You guessed it. Debbie was cooking up a cadet of her own. As a
1: matter of fact, I was the first female assigned to the uniform division pregnant. Um so, again, I found uh, myself in a situation where we sort of made it up as we went along. They have uh, guidelines now, you know, that have been written because obviously it happens more now. There's even a maternity uniform and such. But, um, yeah, what did
0: you do? What did you do with the uniform?
1: <laughs> well, I, I stayed in my uniform until my gun belt wouldn't fit anymore.
0: And then I went into plain clothes. During her pregnancy, Debbie got assigned to a job that, at the time, they called Station Man, She'd sit at the front desk and guide people when they walked into the police station. There was one night when she did get off desk duty to fill in for a paddy wagon driver, which she was excited about. But she says her fellow officers were so protective of her that they were endangering themselves. So she spent the rest of her pregnancy at the desk. Enter Whitney, a baby who got shuttled to and from daycare in a police car, a baby who had a code name that her parents used over the ham radio. Usually it would go something like,
1: um, I'm tied up and going to be for a while. Can you get that package?
0: And then the answer would be, <laughs> you know, ten I'll pick up the package. Whitney's parents didn't want to sound unprofessional to anyone listening in. But the people they worked with knew exactly what they were talking about.
1: And so the joke between all of the officers that we work with, you know, they still today ask how the package is.
0: The package is doing just fine. She has vivid memories of those daycare days, too. And she actually sounds a lot like her mom now.
1: They would pick me up from daycare. I would run and, like, hug them. And it would always just smell like that uniform. It was polyester. (laughs) So I don't remember what they wore outside of that.
0: Whitney remembers eating dinner in front of the TV while her dad polished his shoes and her mom ironed her uniform. Then velcroed back all the metal pieces, making sure they were perfectly straight. She fondly remembers sitting on her dad's lap in the basement, making bullets. And she remembers less fondly being late to school when her mom had to stop on the expressway to respond to accidents. As you can imagine, Debbie saw some pretty brutal car accidents. And when Whitney's friends got their licenses, her parents would not allow her to get in cars driven by teens. But then, Whitney got her permit.
1: And of course, you know, she was excited and she wanted to drive. And and I wanted her to be, you know, I remember that, I wanted her to be able to start. But bless her heart, she's always riding in a police car. I could never just scoot over and say, okay, you know, you drive home. So she just really hadn't had the opportunity to drive. The only thing she'd ever driven was our tractor at home. So I picked her up from her dance class one night. It was maybe, you know, eight, nine o'clock. It was dark. And her dance school... Um, studio was adjacent to kind of an industrial area. So at night, it was just dead over there. You know, there was nothing really going on and there was this huge parking lot. And um, so I took her over to the parking lot and I said, okay, you're going to drive. And she was like, what? I'm sure my mom was terrified, but not so terrified that she wouldn't let me drive the police car
0: wait you you learned in the
1: police car I did I learned in the police car my very first time driving yeah I think the statute of limitations has run out on me being in trouble for it <laughs> <laughs> So we go to this parking lot and I'm trying to drive this car and it's huge, it's a boat. I mean, these are Crown Victorias, they're ginormous. I should also say that I had an unmarked car at the time. It had no bar like lights on top or anything that said it was a police car, but the car was really heavily tinted on the windows. I think my car had belonged to narcotics before I had it and so they had darkly tinted them for surveillance purposes. And I'm like, Mom, I can't see out the window. So mid-December, we roll down all the windows, you know, in the car, because I can't see. We're bundled up in this car with the windows down, trying to get her in a parking place. Of course, none of us are great when we start, but she was having so much trouble putting this car between two yellow lines. You know, she was she couldn't figure out when to turn. I mean, we I'm sure we looked like something was wrong. So I actually probably technically should not have done that, uh, but I just felt so sorry for her that she hadn't been able to have that normal experience of, you know, getting behind the wheel soon after having her permit. So I uh, made a command decision, as we say, and just broke down and let her do it.
0: (laughs) After that, Debbie was a little nervous. She wanted to prepare Whitney not just to park well or drive straight, but to handle emergencies, to avoid crashes whenever possible.
1: Unfortunately for her, I was actually working at our training academy. One of my jobs there was that I was the driving instructor. So I taught uh, high-performance driving, pursuit driving, and uh, emergency driving, and I had a driving course that you could actually drive on. And the cool thing about it was you didn't have to go very fast on it, but it was engineered in such a way that it felt the f- the forces that work on you inside the car were double the speed you were actually going. So she put me on the course, and she made me run drills like— Like evasive maneuvering drills. I think we called it the decision course. Just, you know, how quick you can make a decision and make an evasive move. She'd be like, okay, you're gonna speed as fast as you can up to the sign. And at the last minute, I'm gonna drop this guide and it's gonna tell you if you have to go left or if you have to go right to like avoid the thing coming at you. It kind of mimics some hazardous happened and you can no longer go the way you're going. And so at the last minute, you know, so I would speed towards the sign and she would drop the sign and it would say like, go right. So then I had to like jerk the car to the right, and make sure I don't run off the road. The move requires you to do a weight transfer with the car by tapping the brake, putting the weight over the wheels that are actually going to be steering, so you have to actually accelerate through it to make it work, and it's very counterintuitive. If someone has just walked out in front of you, you want to slam your brakes on, you know? We have all the analog brakes and stuff now, but at the time, if you locked that car up, you had no steering input. If it started skidding, it was going however it was headed until it stopped. I'm pretty sure no other 16-year-old was getting this type of education. (laughs) It was just me. Were you good at it? Yeah, I was really good at it. Was she like, oh, you should be police? No. Well, I don't know. You'll have to ask her if she thought I was good at it. I thought I was good at it. I thought it was the best. (laughs) So you'll have to ask her what she thinks. She might have a completely different story. She was very good. She was very good. Unfortunately, I think she kind of inherited that little bit of daredevil from me. So, and that was scary too, right? Um, But it was really interesting to see those young reflexes, you know, as opposed to some of the older guys that I was teaching sometimes.
0: When you went to go actually take your driving test, were you like, oh, this is boring. I'm just driving on the highway.
1: Yeah, I was like, you just want me to parallel park? Okay, I got this. (laughs) Where where's your sign that tells me that I need to, like, avoid this crane that's coming towards me?
0: Where's where's the phony criminal that I'm chasing?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't see a ramp anywhere around here, you guys. <laughs> you were, like, ready for some Jason Bourne-style <laughs> driving test. <laughs> I was ready for all <laughs> of it. And somehow I still managed not to get 100.
0: <laughs> but, Debbie says, training Whitney to drive like a cop on a high-speed chase— was not about preparing her for her driving test. Debbie still hears from officers who tell her that the decision course maneuver saved their lives. One guy wrote her a letter saying he was able to avoid hitting a young girl in a crosswalk because of it. And so it was only logical. If that maneuver was important enough to teach her colleagues, it was important enough to teach her daughter, her only child. Debbie retired in 2002. She sometimes plays bagpipes in the police department pipe and drum corps, and she's also a grandma. Whitney gave birth to her own daughter eight months ago. Coming up, kale. Sometimes it's flat, sometimes it's curly, and sometimes it drags up your mother's past. Stay with us. <laughs> We're back. And for our second story, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine.
2: My name is Hope Wabuki, and I'm a writer and poet and also an assistant professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.
0: I met Hope this summer at a residency in upstate New York. It's called Space on Ryder Farm. The week that Hope and I were there, all of us residents were parents, and we brought our kids.
2: My son's name is Aslan. He is six and three quarters. The three (laughs) quarters are very important, he says. (laughs) Of
0: course. Aslan and my daughter and all the other kids spent their days with counselors, crafting and swimming and playing theater games. They were always decked out in like hand-decorated hats and necklaces and having fainting contests. While the kids were doing their thing, us grown-ups would spread around the property and work. One afternoon, I was typing at a table in this old, creaky house where I was staying, and Hope stopped by. She said she'd spent the entire day out in the hammock, writing a poem about kale. I don't remember what I said to her. Probably something like, oh, cool. But I remember thinking, kale? What is there to say about kale? On our last day at the farm, we all took turns reading some of our work. Hope read her Kale poem. And guys, yeah, it turns out there are many good reasons to write an ode to Kale. So I want to share Hope's story with you. Here's one passage that sticks with me.
2: I eat fast on the run, do not exercise, and I lose my balance, dizzy, spinning lightheaded, only understanding one thing. This is how you are going to die. Your heart, like your mother, is going to die.
0: Ode to Kale is about Hope's mom and her son, and both of their relationships with Kale. I called Hope up to talk about the experiences that inspired the poem. We'll start with her mom. My mom does not like vegetables. Hope says her mom's vegetable hatred comes partly from the job she had when Hope was growing up.
2: You know, she was working in a school kitchen, and, you know, she just— ate what the kids were eating. And she, like, you know, she'd always bring home the grandma's cookies and the Mega Muffins and the the apple turnovers and the, you know, instant burritos. And and she loves her red meat. And she just thought this was amazing. This is America. And look at all these tasty things. And we didn't
0: have those things back home. Hope's parents immigrated here from Uganda in 1976, before Hope was born. In the mid-'80s, Hope's mom got that school kitchen job, and ever since then, processed foods have been her favorite foods.
2: And just her health has suffered now because of it. You know, she's had her second heart attack and she has, you know, diabetes and lupus. And, and you know, it, it hurts my heart seeing her because
0: I feel like this, this ticking clock, For the last four years, Hope has been trying to get her mom to eat healthy, specifically to eat kale, mainly because Hope was feeding it to her son, and she knew it was a vegetable that grew in her mother's homeland, so she thought she could start a nice grandma-grandson connection. I want to have you read a little bit of the poem. So um, on the second page, there's a little passage that begins with, Kale is good for you, I tell my mother.
2: Oh, okay. Um... Kale is good for you, I tell my mother. It will help you feel better. But she will not eat it. Here, kale is a delicacy, I tell her. A hipster organic treat at Whole Foods, higher priced per pound than the special coffee or cuts of meat she enjoys.
0: So that that part where you tell your mom it will help you feel better, it's a delicacy, it's a hipster organic treat at Whole Foods. <laughs> I mean, that made me laugh, you know? Um and like how did how did she react when you told her that? That was when she told me
2: that kale is a weed that grows on the side of the road in Kenya. And it clicked for me then that, that it it was kind of like a, a cultural status thing. It would be like us somebody telling you to eat dandelions, you know, and her being like why I have money to go buy food. Why would I eat this, this weed that grows on the side of the road?
0: Hope has learned over time that her mom's refusal to eat kale is more than a pride thing. It took a while for Hope to get the full context because she knows very little about her parents' life in Africa.
2: My parents didn't ever want to talk about it. I didn't understand that when I was young. I just wanted to know who I was. I wanted to know our language and our history and our culture and and all the things to do with Uganda. And they
0: didn't want to talk about it. Hope is the third of five siblings. And for decades, they have all pressed their parents for more information. They'll get a little here, a little there. Hope calls them breadcrumbs of their family history. And then the siblings will pool their knowledge piece things together. The mission's more urgent than it used to be, too. Hope's father passed away in May, and she knows that when her mom dies, she'll take all of the unspoken family history with her. Here is some of what Hope has figured out. In 1971, Uganda was ruled by a dictator. His name was Idi Amin, also known as the Butcher of Uganda, because he massacred hundreds of thousands of people. Some of the groups he targeted were teachers, Christians, and intellectuals.
2: And my dad was all three. He was a pastor. He was intellectual. He was a professor at Macquarie University. And so at one point in time, Amin's son actually moved in next to my parents, and they were under surveillance and, you know, what he was teaching in the classroom. And so they got word that their names were on the lists uh, to be killed, one of Amin's kill lists.
0: Hope has figured out that her mom was a nurse in Uganda, that she worked to help starving babies who had lost their parents. Hope's mom was also once in an elevator, and Idi Amin himself got in, and she had to spend several terrifying minutes in there with him until she got to her floor and ran out. Hope also knows that her parents narrowly escaped death by fleeing Uganda in the middle of the night with Hope's oldest sister, who was a baby at the time, that they'd traveled mostly by foot to Kenya. The details on all of these stories are fuzzy, though, about her family and about African Blackness in general. There was so much history that had been erased. And this is actually why Hope became a poet, to try to fill in some of those blanks, and to process her feelings about her parents' trauma and the impact that it's had on her own life. Ode to Kale is part of that. Could you read the passage that starts, My Mother Hates Kale?
2: My mother hates kale, she says, because after that gun-splattered night, they escaped from the dictator and his genocides. Kale grew everywhere like a weed, she says, and they ate it for days. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, she says, organic and locally sourced from the campyard or the side of the road.
0: Hope doesn't know much more than that about her parents' escape, but she understands this. For her mom, kale represents terror. And there's nothing hope can do to convince her that kale could actually be a source of pleasure, that it could help extend her life. And I think a version of this struggle plays out a lot between adults and their aging parents. Like if your parents are living unhealthy lifestyles and they don't wanna change, there's not a lot you can do. You can't control what they put in their mouths. But to a certain extent, you can with your kids. Okay, those of you with picky eaters will disagree with me here. But most parents at least get to decide what's on the menu. And in Hope's poem, she wrote about how she unexpectedly found a fun way to steer her son, Aslan, to Kale. It all started when she was going through her own trauma. At the time, she and Aslan were living in Long Beach, California.
2: The reason why we ended up in Long Beach to begin with was that we had left um, his father when Aslan was about... uh, nine months old because of domestic violence and so we were living in a domestic violence shelter that year and you know I felt like a terrible mother having you know my child's first year in that and and
0: just doing the best I could to try to keep him safe and healthy. Hope would get on a bus and take Aslan to library story time then they would head over to a juice bar where Hope would buy him a kale popsicle.
2: It became like, a, it was his little treat. You know, my mom would, would rather I gave him <laughs> a cookie, but I, <laughs> I, I liked that he, he really liked his kale popsicles.
0: After about a year, Hope and Aslan got an apartment of their own, a tiny one-bedroom, no windows. But she did have a blender, and she'd recreate the kale popsicle recipe at home. These days, they live in Lincoln, Nebraska, where Hope teaches writing. And kale popsicles are still in heavy rotation.
2: Yeah, I buy the biggest bunches of kale I can find. So like two big bunches of kale. You know, I add some water, the juice from some lemons, ginger, apples, and dates, and just blend it. Um, It was funny because I would made a batch last week. And so he'd got into the freezer and he'd eaten one. And he's like, Mom, there's only one more kale popsicle. We have to go get more kale to make more kale popsicles. Like, he's really excited about them.
0: Do you have any memories of your mom and your son interacting over kale? Like, (laughs) has she ever watched him eat a kale popsicle and had a reaction?
2: (laughs) Yes. This my mom has watched Aslan eat kale popsicles, and she just thought it was the worst thing ever. She's like, how are you torturing that poor child to give him kale? But then Aslan goes, Nana, it's really good. It's really good, and it's healthy, and, and you know, it's good to be healthy.
0: So he he loves kale, <laughs> and your mom yes. hates it, and you're, like, yes. caught in between. Like, what do you make of this? I think it's just um,
2: they have different experiences with it. You know, for my mom, has this incredibly negative experience with it, and um, Aslan, uh, for him, it was you know a very positive experience of you know being at the library and having a really fun time, and then being able to ride his scooter down to the juice place with his little best friend and sit there and eat popsicles and
0: giggle. You know how sometimes you read something or hear something or see something that changes the way you view the world, even just a little? Hope's Ode to Kale did that for me. Like, never in my life have I imagined that there could be intergenerational meaning in a bitter green leaf that grows out of the ground. That for one generation, this leaf can mean something as horrible as genocide. For the next generation, it can mean respite from a violence shelter. And for the generation after that, there is no bitterness. It's just a veggie, blended and frozen into pure Slurpee fun. Ode to Kale is not published yet, so we can't share the entire poem with you, but Hope has generously shared a long excerpt with us, which you can find at our website, longestshortesttime.com, in the post for this episode. That's episode 216. In a minute, we'll have a completely different story about the link between two generations one of our favorite father daughter teams returns to the show. Yep, it's the Ketchkamethies. And as always, they've got news. Don't go away.
3: <laughs> <Advertisements>. <laughs>
0: we are back and I invite you to travel back in time with me to a moment before this show even existed, 10 years ago when I was big and pregnant, just weeks from my due date. I was making a podcast at the time for the University of Pennsylvania. The guy who hired me was named Tom, Tom Ketchumethy. Tom was having a dinner party for work people, and he'd invited me. It was a small group, maybe 20 people. Tom was at the head of the table, And at some point, he turned to me and said, want to hear how I found out I was going to be a dad? And he added something I would later learn he says a lot.
3: I'm not proud of this moment.
0: Which, of course, made me want to hear Tom's story even more. I was like, yes, please. Tell me how you found out you were going to be a dad. The story goes like this. Tom was in the Navy at sea on his first deployment. He was 24, recently married. He'd called home to say hi to his wife. And she said,
3: I've got news. And I said, what's that? And she told me she was pregnant. And it was so, I'm not proud of this moment. I'm just not, um, I think I pretty much just hung up.
0: That is signature Ketchkomethy. The cringy but honest anecdote that he's embarrassed but happy to tell. And that frankly, I wish more dads would be willing to share. I interviewed Tom for episode 12 of this show. It's called I've Got News. We talked about how he eventually became a stay-at-home dad to his two daughters, Ellen and Jill. He told stories he's proud of, like that time he ran out in a rainstorm to buy tampons for his wife when she got her period in the middle of the night, bonus points for thinking to stock up on diapers and baby food while he was at it, and he told more stories he's not proud of.
3: I remember one time I lifted Ellen up by the front of her shirt and pinned her against the wall with one hand and screamed in her face. And you know, how did I I do that? You want to know what it was about? It was about her not going up the stairs fast enough. She was four years old and she was not climbing the stairs fast enough to suit me after a long day. And it was just the end of the fricking line. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And her sister blanched and cried, and Ellen lost it, and I felt like the biggest piece of crap of a parent that you could possibly feel like.
0: Tom called me a couple years later. He was like, guess what? I've got more news.
3: So I'm going to be a 47-year-old grandpa.
0: Tom's surprise baby, Ellen, was 21 by then, a senior in college, and she was pregnant with a surprise baby of her own. Tom found out on his 47th birthday when Ellen brought her boyfriend Tim home for the first time, and they broke the news.
3: My exterior self was saying, we love you, and there's no question about whether or not we're going to show up for this. Um, You know, all of that good, loving, supportive stuff. And my inside voice was just basically saying, fuck this. I haven't even dealt with being an empty nester yet. I haven't even dealt with, I'm not even over you. How am I supposed to invest in this kid?
0: Ellen herself was nervous about dropping out of college, becoming a mom. And early on, she had considered terminating the pregnancy. She and Tim had even gone to an appointment at Planned Parenthood for a consult.
4: It was interesting. Um... I've actually had an abortion in the past. So the room where they show you the video, which I had viewed once before, about uh, the termination procedures and everything like that is actually in the same room as the recovery room that you sit in um, after you go through the procedure. And I was having like almost like PTSD moments.
0: <laughs> in a later episode, Ellen revealed to me that she'd actually terminated two pregnancies while she was in college, Again, thank you, Ketchkomethies, for sharing the hard things. Ellen had one termination in her sophomore year, one in her junior year. She says she doesn't regret those abortions. She didn't want to start a family with either of those guys. But with Tim, things felt different. Things felt right. Ellen says her three college pregnancies were due to pill failure. She admits she didn't always take it at the exact same time every day. Pretty much everyone on the pill misses one now and then. Ellen just happens to be in that small percentage of people who get pregnant taking those liberties. After Ellen left college, she moved back home with her parents, which is not something she was too psyched about or her parents were too psyched about, but then she eventually got an apartment with Tim. Tim took on a few jobs. They made a budget. They felt like they were playing at being adults. And while everybody waited for the baby to come, Tom started a project to cope.
3: We're raising backyard chickens now. My wife <laughs> 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 it's of, What? Think, <laughs> we are. It was kind of like, a, dude, I got to do something. We're doing something. So I'm, I'm building this hen house, and I'm actually up on top of the hen house, putting on asphalt shingle, and I get a call from Ellen. And I, like, nervously picked it up, and she was crying and scared and said, hi, Papa. And I said, and I said, hi, baby, what's going on? She said, I think your grandchild is coming. And she was kind of crying through it. Um, and that was no help for my anxiety either, because Ellen sounded scared.
0: In the summer of 2013, Ellen gave birth to her daughter, Fiona. And while the doctor was stitching Ellen up, they offered her a different kind of birth control, an implant they'd put inside her arm that would last for three years Ellen said, yes, please. If she was going to get pregnant again, she wanted it to be premeditated.
4: So it was two years before I got sick of that birth control because it was, it was terrible. It was just the worst. What was bad about it? Oh, it killed my sex
0: drive. There you go. Hey, Dad. <laughs> um, this amazing Ketchka moment happened about a month ago. Ellen was at her dad's house, and I had called them to catch up.
4: Yeah, it absolutely killed my sex drive. I think it's hard enough to come back from having had a child and wanting to be intimate with your partner anyway. And by, like, year two of not (laughs) wanting to be intimate still, I was like, maybe there's something else going on here. So... At that point, I got the birth control taken out, and we were at the point where we were wanting to have another kid anyway. So we got it taken out, and I did notice a big change in my moods and my wanting
0: to be intimate and everything like that. Pretty soon after she got the implant out, Ellen got pregnant with her first premeditated baby. And Tom had a first with this baby, too.
3: Theo is the first boy that I've really had in my life because I've been in girl world forever. And having a, gr- a grandson is amazing and awesome, and he was he's the it was It hand. was
0: kind of a big deal yeah. for there to be a grandson. After Theo's birth, while Ellen was being stitched up, she was deciding what type of birth control she wanted this time. Between the pill failing her repeatedly and the implant failing her romantically— Ellen felt done with hormonal birth control. She settled on an IUD. She told the delivery room doctors and figured, I'm all set. I thought I got one implanted
4: after my pregnancy with Theo. And um, Wait, what made you think that? Well, I thought it was the same situation as getting the implants. And there must have been some miscommunication because I have found out since that usually the IUD is implanted at the six-week return visit, you know, like the six-week checkup, because your body needs some time to heal and not, like, eat the IUD. <laughs> so I thought that I had a copper IUD and so a non-hormonal birth control. But then, surprise, I was
0: pregnant. This was just nine months after Theo was born.
4: So I had a variety of doctor's appointments where we were looking for that IUD for a while, and the doctors <laughs> didn't find any up there. And so that's how we figured out that, oh, gee— guess that explains my pregnancy. <laughs> so yeah, that she was definitely a surprise.
0: What was your reaction when you figured out you were pregnant?
4: Oh, we, were, we were already thinking about having another kid. Were you really? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh,
0: I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Tom, what was your reaction when Ellen told you she was pregnant with her third child?
3: Ellen did not tell me she was pregnant with her third child. That's not how I found out. How did you find out? I found out from the person who delivers to me all of the big news in my life. That would be Fiona. (laughs) I found out that Ellen and Tim had gotten married from Fiona. (laughs) I did.
0: At the time, Fiona was two years old.
3: I was laying there on the big blue couch in my family room, minding my own business. And Fiona came in the back door and she said, hey, granddad, guess what? Mommy and daddy got married. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's cool. (laughs) You know, because we, we kind of knew at this point that that was coming around.
0: This was after Ellen and Tim had already told Tom the news about Theo. So Tom kind of figured Tim was in it for the long haul. Okay, fast forward a few years to when Ellen was pregnant with her third child. Tom was in the exact same place he was when he found out about Ellen's marriage. Same room, same big blue couch.
3: So, I swear to God, Hillary, I was on the couch in the family room, minding my own business, and then Fiona came in the back door and she said... Hey, granddad, guess what? There's going to be another baby. And Tim and Alan come in, like, creeping after her with Theo in their arms and this awesome smile on their face. And it was just, it was the most adorable thing. It was, it was.
4: Yeah, I mean, we had done this a few adorable. times at this point. <laughs> so it was, it, each time we got to tell you the news, that we had news, um, it got more fun for me, yep. I think, every time. And
3: more joyful and Oh, for sure. Like,
4: less stressful.
3: First so. time, stress. Second time, joy. Third time uh, um, Third time was just, like, awesome. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, it was awesome.
0: Fiona is six now. Theo is three. And Natalie is two. I want to get to know what the kids are like. So, Tom, can you tell a story about, like, watching Ellen interact with the kids?
3: Oh, wow. Um, hmm. Somebody name a kid.
4: <laughs> Theo.
3: Theo? Yes. That's you pretty much losing your mind because he's like Mr. Floppy Boy and can't strap himself into his own car seat. We,
4: call, part- we do call him a noodle. He's yeah. a noodle. He doesn't use his he's muscles like, to do anything. He's <laughs> like
3: a little noodle boy. We were right out in the driveway and you needed to leave. And you were trying to get all three kids into the car just to go someplace. Just I, I just want to transport my children from point A, being my house, to point B, probably being your house. And, like five minutes away. Right. And loading the three children into the car was like a 30-second evolution. And then get, getting Theo strapped into his car seat was like a 15-minute evolution where you were freaking the fuck out. You were just <laughs> losing
4: it. All I other question was probably oh supposed to be God. like, "Oh, what it moment was... made you cry seeing your daughter <laughs> interact?" Know. Nope, it's me losing it, trying to strap
3: my kid into the car seat. Oh no, oh. no, that's the first thing because because Thea. I, no, it all goes to how I define them as children. It's like Natalie. I nicknamed her Dormammu the Destroyer of Worlds from the Doctor Strange movie because she's just, she destroys everything and she's determined to get herself killed. Fiona is, she taught me how to be a grandfather. She's just, it's, I, I feel still like I'm so close to that. She taught me all this shit, you know? She's awesome that way. She, and she was my first travel buddy as a grandchild, you know? I mean, just, I don't know. It's, it's deep with her. It's getting deep with the other two, but it's super deep with her.
0: So, Ellen, I want to give you a chance to reciprocate. Can you tell a story about watching your dad interact with any of your kids?
4: The most fun thing to see with my dad with the kids is the way that he acts the same as he did with my sister and I when we were kids there's sometimes where you'll say something or do something that I've completely forgotten that that's a dadism and then you're there you are doing it with my kids and it makes and it makes me really happy what's a dadism when we were very young i mean small enough that you were still washing all of the parts of our body when we were in the bathtub the movie The Great Mouse Detective came out in 1990-whatever, and the theme song to The Great Mouse Detective, Dad made a washing-our-bodies song for the bathtub, and he sings the same song to our kids <laughs> while he bathes them.
3: They wait for it, too.
4: Yeah, they do, <laughs> and we do not sing that. It's not something we continued at our house no. or
0: anything. <laughs> Tom, can we have a verse? Yes.
3: Uh, no. Yeah, I'm washing Ellen's belly and her toes. You get the soap on your hands, and the hair is already done. You got to leave the the conditioner to sit. Right, and it's oh, I'm washing Ellen's belly and her back. I wash her front and right on down her little heiner crack, (laughs) (laughs) and then it goes on from there. It's uh, it's fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's the thing.
0: Thank you for that. (laughs) Ellen, are there any more kids in your future? No. Unless Tim's vasectomy fails.
4: So Tim got a vasectomy? Tim did get a vasectomy. It was in time for Natalie's first birthday or right around Natalie's first birthday.
0: Ellen has finally found the birth control that works for her. Then again, there is a 1.5% chance of a vasectomy failing. And if it's going to fail for anyone... Ellen says when her kids are older, she's going to be honest with them about their family history of surprises, and she'll tell them to double up on birth control methods. But if something does happen, she says that like Tom, she'll be an empathetic parent. This episode was produced by me, Hillary Frank, with Jackie Sajiko and Elizabeth Nakano. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Andrea Kristen's daughter. Our music is performed by HotMoms.gov. We get editorial support from Antonia Acatunde, Amory Baldonado, Reka Murthy, and Julia Wang. Special thanks today to Will Bauer. Next week on the Longest Shortest Time, actress Busy Phillips goes in for a dream audition just one week after giving birth. I literally am ninety pounds overweight, and I.
1: And bleeding and lactating. But yeah, I think I should do that. I think that's a good idea.
0: <laughs> like one week postpartum. Were you um, still like wearing the postpartum Wearing diaper? a diaper. I was like wearing a diaper.
1: Yes. Yes. My maternity jeans, a diaper.
0: Yep. The life of a Hollywood mom is glamorous and busy will tell us all about it. You do not want to miss this episode. I had a super fun and also super deep conversation with Busy, and she's one of my favorite actresses. So subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now.